0: Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today we are talking about girls' education, and specifically we're focusing about girls' education in India. And to join us for this conversation today is Safina Hussein, who is the founder of Educate Girls. Now, Educate Girls is very well known in certain circles, but perhaps not to everyone, so I'll give you a little bit of an overview. They are a nonprofit based in India. They were founded by Safina in 2007. They focus on mobilizing communities for girls' education in India's most rural and backward areas, and they've scaled up from basically nothing to operate now in over 20,000 villages in three states. So if you can imagine that. And there's still a lot of room for growth as well. We're going to be talking about the work they do. We're going to be looking at the scalability as well. They've done some really innovative stuff as well around financing. So they've, um, under Safina's leadership, launched the first development impact bond, Dib. Uh, So we're going to touch into that as well. And needless to say, we're we're having this interview with the backdrop of uh, COVID-19 that has resulted in many girls leaving school and who knows how many will actually come back? Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank. Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, today it's such a pleasure to welcome onto the show Safina Hussein, who is the founder of Educate Girls. Safina, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today.
1: Thank you so much. This is uh, exciting. I'm very excited for this conversation.
0: Excellent, excellent. Let's start off by hearing a little bit about Educate Girls. What's the organization all about?
1: Yeah, so Educate Girls uh, is a nonprofit that I started about 15 years ago in India. And we work specifically on the issue of out of school girls. So, girls who have either never been enrolled in school, or have have dropped out. And uh, to give you context about the numbers, there are about 4 million out of school girls in India. this is pre-COVID numbers. And uh, they are concentrated in certain hotspots, which are rural, tribal, remote areas. And that's where we focus and we work. And the reason we focus on educating girls is because even the World Bank says it's the best investment you can make. Educating girls, you know, impacts nine of the 17 sustainable development goals. Anything you want to change from health, nutrition, you know, tackling poverty, even climate change. Right now, climate scientists, you know, Project Drawdown says they rated 80 actions to solve global warming. And girls education was number six ahead of solar panels and electric cars. So that's the, the key piece that Educate Girls is focused on. And we find out of school girls. We make sure that they are enrolled in school, they're attending, and uh, learning.
0: Hmm. And the organization. So you've started it, you've you launched it out of nothing, and now you're operating in over twenty thousand villages.
1: Yes, it's been an incredible, uh, you know, scale journey in the last fifteen years. We started with about fifty schools. We, you know, scaled it to five hundred, and from five hundred, we went to about. Uh, two and a half thousand from two and a half thousand it went to five thousand and it's just been sort of exponential in terms of the growth and today we're about 20,000 villages three states of Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh, Uttar Pradesh and a full-time team of about 2,200 employees and community volunteers called Team Balika uh, which just means the team for the girl child about 15,000.
0: Fascinating really fascinating now, the the work around education for girls, uh, it's many people think, okay, well, let's build schools, but that's not necessarily the the thing, right? I mean, there's there's a lot that you need to look at. It's not building buildings per se.
1: Yes, absolutely. You're you're so right. I mean, I think the I call them my two P's that keep girls out of school, and that's poverty and patriarchy. So, in some of the areas where we work, you know, there are. Um, Families are too poor, so therefore they have to use their children to either work or, you know, graze the cattle, graze the goats, et cetera. So there's a poverty barrier. The second is the patriarchy barrier, where we don't believe that our sons and daughters are equal. And, you know, in a lot of areas where I work, a, a goat is an asset and a girl is a liability. And it really is that mindset that keeps a lot of girls out of school, that keeps them from actually getting educated or completing their education even if they're in school
0: and is that arguably the biggest impediment to girls being in school if i understand things correctly in india for instance in the earlier years um the uh, the attendance rate of, of the population the, the girls population is actually quite high and then and then as girls start to grow up there's a very high drop-off rate is that right
1: yes absolutely very high drop-off rates and uh, and and particularly so at the transition points. So you will have higher enrollment gra- uh, rates and attendance rate till the fifth grade. But at the fifth grade, the girl moves from a primary school to a middle school. And sometimes at that transition, because she's also about, you know, uh, she's becoming an adolescent at this point. And so by the middle school, you will see a large number of girls drop out. And when they make the transition from, let's say, grade eight to grade nine, A lot of girls drop out at this point. Um, And uh, a large percentage of this dropout is also resulting in child marriage. So the minute they get their periods, um, they are then in, you know, parents are like, no more, there's no need to go to school anymore, you can just stay at home, do the household work, and and, um, the marriage journey starts.
0: And so how do you go about encouraging that girls stay in school identifying those girls who are not in school and getting them into school and also addressing the, the whole mindset, this whole patriarchy, as you say, um, so that families put a different emphasis on on girls and, and hopefully not view them as a liability.
1: Um, so the way our work starts is, A, first we choose villages that we know are the most vulnerable, where we're going to find the highest number of vulnerable girls and so these are some of the poorest villages and some of the most socially marginalized villages rural remote tribal the more remote they are the more they'll be on our radar uh, in terms of scaling to and saturating and once we're in these villages uh, we create a community level volunteer called team balika which is uh, balika just means the girl child and these are usually young people they're educated you know and because they're educated let's say even up to the 12th grade they understand the value of education. We train them, we groom them to become sort of leaders within their, uh, and champions for girls' education within their village. And then together with them, we go door to door and we find every single out-of-school girl. And this is a very intense activity. We have to do it once when we enter a village. Um, But it gives us very uh, solid foundation in terms of exact data. Because it's one thing to say, oh, there there will be a large number of -of out-of-school girls in this village. But for us, the work starts when we know exactly who that girl is and where she is, because we actually then hand-hold her and track this girl through the life journey, uh, through the educational journey. So once we've done this door-to-door survey and we know exactly who the girls are, then our community mobilization starts. And since data is at the basis of this, we may um, decide that here in the village are our high concentrations. So we will do neighborhood meetings. Or if the out-of-school number is very scattered across the village, then we might do just village meetings. And sometimes we know that here somebody who lives on the periphery of the village. They're not going to attend or they haven't attended the neighborhood meeting or the village meeting. And then it might be very intense personal one-on-one counseling. But the teams will look at the data. They will look at their own village and they will figure out what are the best mobilizations efforts uh for bringing that child back into school and here we leverage an an mou that we have with the state governments so that the village head the teachers everybody is supporting us so it isn't that you know anybody feels that oh these people have come from the outside to do this Uh, you have a village level volunteer you have your team balika volunteer and you have the system standing with you to help you do this so you basically become the catalyst
0: Mm -hmm. So in the villages where you're active and you have been active life has been transformed for many of these girls.
1: For yes, but it takes time. I don't want anybody to think like it happens overnight. So one is the door-to-door survey and then once we have this data we actually start to enroll girls back in school. And we have some beautiful data especially from the development impact bond and it showed that we were able to convert uh, the younger girls back into school a lot sooner, let's say in the first year. And it took us the second, and sometimes even the third year to convert the older girls because the resistance, the community, the society, the parental resistance around those um, older girls is so severe that it can take us sometimes more than 12 months to actually help her come back into school. But we persevere. So we we stay in a village. It's not a, you know, a program that parachutes in and parachutes out like a, a one-year, a single-year program. That's why it's a, it's a deep multi-year program to make sure that in in three to, to six years or eight years, we're not just working on the identification, bringing every single girl back into school. Then we work with the schools to make sure that they are girl-friendly. Otherwise the girls will just drop out. Uh, do they have a toilet for girls? Do they have water? Do they have all the facilities that are girl-friendly? And finally, we work on learning. See, because if girls are not given that support, it's, it's an issue of confidence as well. If you've been out of school for two years, you can't simply be mainstreamed into school. So there's a lot of remediation, handholding support that we do to make sure that if there is a risk of dropout, we can, you know, gently sort of give her a leg up back into the school system. So in each of our districts, we could be there almost for a generation, between six to eight years, and and cover ten cohorts of children.
0: And I imagine that's how long it would take to change mindsets, right, of the older generations. I, mean, I imagine you can't just change mindsets in 12 months.
1: Yeah, but, you know, the other side of it is that if you do that, then that's a whole generation you've impacted. And we know, and there's so much data out there that actually clearly shows that if uh, a mother is educated, she is 200% more likely to educate her children. So these are intergenerational impacts that you're creating, right? The effect actually transfers and amplifies. So our thing is that if we can get into these most vulnerable villages and stay for and handhold and support this particular generation, we actually won't have to go back there to do anything next time, right? And that's such a powerful thing. And I think that's the magic of girls' education. That's the power of it, that it's a battle that is just, we have to fight in our lifetime. Because that girl will take care of, you know, her own future generations and their education.
0: Now, even though you're already in 20,000 villages, that's just a a, a drop in the ocean when you put it within the broader context of the whole of India.
1: True. But, uh, you know, the development in backbone, because it forced us to use data in these ways and and do data-driven decision-making, we had such beautiful uh, data coming in. We partnered with ID Insight, and they're helping us use these algorithms. And they've helped us predict that even though India has the third highest number of -of out-of-school girls anywhere on the planet, about forty percent of -of out-of-school girls are actually located in five percent of the villages. Mm -hmm. Which is such a brilliant opportunity (laughs) for for impact, because if you can saturate those five percent of the villages with like an educate girls sort of multi-year deep program um, think of think of the the impact the the, you know that it will generate for generations to
0: come sure I love the fact that you have data at the center of much of what you do and I'd love to hear a little bit about how that data is helping you to identify those clusters of -of out-of-school girls and also I'd love to hear you mentioned the development impact bond um, which I understand was done in conjunction with UBS um, love to hear about that, you know, because I know that not only was it innovative as a mechanism to, to, to bring funding, uh, and make change happen, but also that the actual, uh, data that came out from this surpassed expectations that, uh, that, you know, on completion, um, that the target, you know, the outcomes that she had, uh, targeted were surpassed by, by a really wide margin. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about data and what you do and the, the development impact bond. Sure.
1: I, you know, um, let me talk about the development impact bond. And before I even get into the details, I do want to touch upon why we did the development impact bond. Because uh, a lot of people sometimes think, oh, they they saw it as a fundraising tool or whatever. But actually, our lens for going down that path, because you have to remember at that time, nobody had ever done it. Um, and it had never been done outside the Western world. So we had, we worked. I mean, I struggled for about three years trying to a, convince people that this is something we should do. Uh, and UBS was such a fabulous partner because they're the first ones whose eyes lit up and they're like, oh, my God, we see the power of this. But essentially what was happening with me and with Educate Girls was that we were going from like 50 to 500 to two and a half thousand villages to 5,000. Like, The scale was so kind of exponential. And I began to really worry. Like the the thing that kept me up at night all the time was are we having impact? Are we delivering quality? Is this just replication, replication? Or is this really, you know, a value add for the girl at the end of it? Mm -hmm. And that got me really worried. And I was like, is it just scale or is it scale with quality? And that's what I heard about, you know, payment by results mechanisms. Uh, And then that grew into uh, the entire development, impact bond structure. And the idea, the core idea was that if we could do this, because a Dib is essentially a a payment by results contract, right? Mm -hmm. And and so essentially, um, I would be the service provider because I'm actually delivering the service on the ground and delivering the result that I would be paid for. And then there's somebody who's purchasing this outcome, this result. Uh, And that's kind of the outcome pair. And usually in a social impact bond, that would be the government, like the UK government did with the, with the Peterborough bond, et cetera, right? The social impact bonds. So you have a government or a, a, another authority that's purchasing these results, and you have an NGO like me that's a service provider or another agency that's a service provider. However, as a nonprofit, I don't have any working capital. I can't wait for three years to deliver services and then hope to get paid because I can't take the financial risk. That's why you have an investor come in. So UBS Optimus Foundation uh, played the role of that social investor and gave us all the money up front. And then there's a third-party evaluator that actually measured our performance and told the outcome payer saying, okay, hey, this is what they delivered. And based on the report, the outcome payer finally released the money. So SIF, Children's Investment Fund Foundation, was actually the outcome payer. Purchasing and the two results that they were purchasing was that the out-of-school girls, as verified by the third-party evaluator, were back in school and staying in school. And the second was on learning outcomes. So the children from baseline, you know, what are the improvements that they were making in terms of their reading, writing, literacy, numeracy, et cetera. And we had three subjects. We had Hindi, English, and, and math uh, over a three-year period. So that's essentially the overall kind of a structure for it. So I take the risk of performance and a sort of a reputation risk I guess the UBS Optimus Foundation is taking the financial risk so if I don't perform they lose the money and then SIF as the outcome payer gets to purchase the impact and if I didn't deliver UBS loses that money and SIF doesn't have to pay out anything so they can or a government or a local government whoever would be an outcome payer so their risk is minimal right It's zero um, but for me, the main interest was, and, uh, and, and because we've been scaling so much, was that if I could deliver to a contract like this, where you know each dollar amount is tied to impact, then I would be able to build an organization that would have not just scale, but scaling quality uh, in its DNA. So then I was like okay if I do this then I know that even if I'm in a million villages I will still be delivering impact to that last child. So that that was the kind of at the heart of it the the hypothesis sort of around this.
0: What was it very difficult to set up?
1: <laughs> it was very difficult to set up because you know it's like um you're you're building the plane and flying it at the same time because none of us had ever done it right there was no template out there for us to follow. So there were, there were definitely like lots of parts we went down and we had to come back up and say, okay, no, 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 you know, can't do this this way. This has to be another way. And also there's so many parties involved. That takes a lot of time. And and all of us were kind of like, okay, this is new. What should we do? You know, how should it be done? So I think it took, uh, took a long time to to design. and uh, And what was wonderful though, was that all parties agreed that people could learn, you know, so much from this. So the entire transaction was completely open. A design memo was on the website every you know every annual report that we came out with the you know the third party evaluators report that came out each year we did like a like an event like a press conference we put it out there for everybody to run with it and to kind of see it all warts and all because we were like this is what you know the next person who goes out to do this should actually <laughs> just have all our mistakes out there up front and then you know they can make their own mistakes or whatever so so that was sort of the idea. And that was great. And honestly, like the first year, we didn't meet our targets. Um, and we really struggled. I think we were like, what did we get ourselves into? And I think UBS was like, okay, we'll see. We'll see what's happening. By the second year, we were still not meeting our targets. Uh, but we had learned enough from the first year. And we had rebuilt a bunch of stuff from the first year to the second year so we were we knew that we were on the right path but obviously you know uh, we, the results were not really being seen by the third year when the when the results came out though we thought okay we, we might meet our targets you know at least for enrollment we were doing really well but for learning we felt like okay maybe we'll get close to our target and i was fine with that but when the results came out the third party evaluators showed that over a three-year period we enrolled about 92% of all out-of-school girls as verified by them. And in terms of learning, uh, we achieved about 160% of our learning target, uh, which was, you know, for an average, like a tribal child, it was, uh, you know, like an additional year of schooling. It was was that level of, so it was very, very high uh, results and really good results. And they were also validating certain things, right? Like if you're in the nonprofit world, a lot of the times donors just fund one-year projects. And it kind of showed us that, you know, poor children, uh, you know, they have to reach a certain tipping point before the learning really kind of accelerates. And you, you have to give time for that to happen. So it was also teaching us so many things. I was validating so many things that we see on the ground. But even for donors to saying, don't just fund one year. Because one year doesn't really make the change for the for the poorest children. You have to. And we saw it with our children. The first year they were just sort of figuring it out. By second year, they were getting it. And by the third year is when the real ramping up happened for them. We could just see all the all the pieces click in terms of learning for them. So it was actually really brilliant that way, but also it forced us. To use data in a way that we had never used data before. And I think e- even now, a lot of the times nonprofits don't use data in the way that, that the DIB forced us to kind of uh, uh, use it. Um, so I'll give you one example. Um in, in a general nonprofit sort of scenario, data comes from the field, it gets aggregated, it gets looked at, and then you know, finally your MD report comes out and it goes to the donor, right? So there's this sort of bottom up trajectory uh, to the donor in the dib because a third party evaluator was going to do the donor report our entire data system shifted our field staff was like if you want me to deliver to results i need to have my own dashboard so the data was now coming up it was getting analyzed and it was being fed right back into the field staff and they wanted sophisticated dashboards. I was amazed at how teen balikas who are just 12th past, were like reading their own dashboards and then figuring out which girl should I go and make a second visit to, to her parents. You know, learning. Uh, my children are not able to do subtraction and they wanted error reports so that we could tell them, you know, uh, let's say that there, if there's a sum with a zero in it, your child is not able to do the subtraction. And so that means that they don't understand place value. That means that you should go back and, 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 and teach the child this particular lesson plan. Right? So that level of sophistication, very quick data loops, very quick feedback systems, error analysis. And it was beautiful to be able to work like that. And our poorest children deserve that kind of you know, intensity uh, and this sort of data-driven approach to, to sort of serving them. So the DIB that way was really, really, really brilliant uh, in in how we were using uh, data for quick feedback and and course correction and error analysis, and then sort of feeding in lesson plans, et cetera.
0: And so you you learned a great deal then out of this whole DIB exercise, this whole Development Impact Bond, even the fact that you became very conversant with data and how to use it, how to how to analyze it, and and uh, how to put it to uh to make a difference.
1: Yeah, and and how to use it for for really for driving and supporting performance. The other thing that we really learned with data, um, because we were looking at it so much, things that we would intuitively say, oh, you know, out of school girls are generally concentrated. But the data now that we had, uh, and, um, you know, ID Insights said, let's look at this. This is very, very, very interesting. And we had never triangulated it with our door-to-door survey data. And we've actually covered millions of households in our door-to-door survey data, right? So we have this beautiful data set uh, that covers every single household. And now our villages are geotagged, each household is geotagged. And they're like, there's something to be done here. And so they used it to build this sort of predictive analytics, you know, this sort of advanced analytics piece using our door-to-door survey data and the publicly available uh, government data. And they layered it all to build this predictive model. And then we got this brilliant, uh, uh, you know, sort of understanding that how much the out of school girls problem was concentrated. And, and, and that kind of led us to, you know, we went to audacious and we said, listen, we want to solve 40% of the problem of out of school girls in India for that. We need to saturate these 5% of the villages. This is what it will cost. And, and can you fund us? And that's what became the Audacious uh, Project. And we became Asia's first organization to become an Audacious Project with that. So the dip directly led to us uh, and to this particular hypothesis.
0: And the Audacious Project, gives us a little bit of insight into that.
1: So the uh, Audacious Project is run by TED. uh, And it is uh, perhaps uh, the largest sort of collaborative um, philanthropic, you know, collaborative giving project. Um, and they source ideas from all over the world so in our year there were about 1500 people who applied on their website and then they shortlist 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 and then we were about I think eight of us that actually got chosen to become an audacious project and then they bring philanthropists to fund that project so uh, we were able to um, get them to come and fund this entire big bet this big idea of Bringing 1.5 million out-of-school girls back into school over five years and solve 40% of the problem of out-of-school uh, girls in India. Mm.
0: And now that problem of out-of-school girls in India really heightened, I guess, right? It's much much more pronounced now than it was before the pandemic.
1: Yes, and so we we were doing really well on our audacious uh, trajectory. And, and then the pandemic hit and, and what the pandemic, uh, you know, and I'm sort of calling it the shadow pandemic is it's impacting women and girls so severely. It is, you know, I've been in the field, I've been sitting in villages for weeks on end and the impact it's having. And I think it will put girls education back like at least a decade, if not more, Uh, unless we do something, Really, because it's not just, I mean, poverty has gotten worse. There's livelihoods have been affected for the poorest people. Um, And and so you see that has has a knock on exponential effect on girls being out of school. The second is patriarchy. People have gotten so used to having the girls at home and doing all the household work, all the looking after and caring for everybody, that now, you know, that demand for education is going to be much less. And the third is that girls themselves are feeling, I mean, I've met so many girls and they are exhausted. First of all, when even in normal times in our societies, women and girls eat last. They serve everybody, they serve the hot food and the hot chapatis, and then they're the last ones to eat. And in the pandemic, when food itself became less because people lost their jobs and because they were pushed back into poverty, imagine who was not only eating last but also least so you know we and again there was a a newspaper article recently that was talking about tribal women and how you know in the last decade their height has actually gone down like so you, you're seeing the impacts of nutrition you will see much worse impact on girls uh, girls already have high levels of anemia you will see that worsen um i think mental health issues i have met so many girls who said you know oh my mother fell my mother fell ill and i have you know uh, three brothers and my father in the house but you know all the caregiving and the household duties are on me so i had to quit school and that's just happening it's not just one girl it's happening to millions and millions of girls and finally the girls are losing confidence i i when i was running camps and i was i was teaching uh, tribal children i was running a camp during the pandemic and the girls were like now i feel shame like after 2 years because our schools have been closed for you know, um, since last March, March 2020, schools have been closed, girls are feeling like maybe I'll fail, then what will people say? And how can I come back? And the confidence is just completely eroded. And that's my worry, that this pandemic will will leave a very lasting and a very negative impact on this issue. Mm.
0: Now, I'm generally an optimist, but you're painting a very stark picture here. Um, is there room for optimism? What What next? What do we do now as we start seeing a little bit of light at the end of that tunnel uh, and hopefully moving into a post-pandemic reality in the not-too-distant future.
1: Yeah, and and the reason I'm painting a stark picture is because I don't want people to forget that these girls are going to go through this. I think uh, what we really have to do right now is keep that most vulnerable girl center stage and then see what is it that she needs. So we were talking earlier to some of the other nonprofits and, and we were like, What's the first metric that we should be measuring when schools reopen? And that is that all girls are back in school. Let's just focus on that for for a while, right? Let's find every single girl and make sure that she comes back into school. The second metric we should be focused on is that she enjoys coming to school every day. Engagement is going to be really key. She needs to feel safe, welcomed, uh, happy, joyful about being in school. And then the learning outcomes will come because you know once we can bring her in and we can build her confidence once she's confident as it happens with our own children as well right like they learn better faster the minute they're feeling good and i think that's what we really need to do and i think we all have we have the tools in our arsenal to really be able to do it but in our planning in our funding in our you know everything that we're thinking about let's keep that most vulnerable girl child at the heart of it yeah
0: it's good you have that clarity of thought. How did you get into all of this? So you you were at the LSE. You uh, you have a very colorful career, diverse career. Give us a little bit of insight into into your journey.
1: Uh, <laughs> I was probably the least you know pred- you know if if there was a predictive thing that was run, uh, nobody would have ever thought I would have landed up at the LSE. Uh, I actually grew up very 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 poor um, in in New Delhi very poor a lot of poverty a lot of abuse a lot of violence um, I was one of those girls who were always kind of at risk of dropping out it was always like you know the teachers would say oh my god look at her attendance it's only like 60 percent this year it's only you know uh, and you'd always get a for it in school um, I was always one of those kids who was pulled up saying okay look at her uniform it's not even you know ironed and look at those shoes she's not polished her shoes and uh doesn't understand and you know it was very 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 difficult and I you know lived through all of that and then after the 12th grade um I I just couldn't the trauma was too much I couldn't even study and uh but then a friend of my father sort of came into my life and really helped me and uh and gave me a lot of love and support and and because of that like I ended up going to london school of economics and it changed my life completely <laughs> so yeah so what i do with educate girls is very much you know what i saw happen in my own life and
0: uh, and was it through the was it through your experience at the lsc uh, that you started thinking in terms of you know the realities of the world around you and some of the uh, the opportunities to improve that world how did you start thinking well let's get into the uh, the whole education, international development sphere, as it were, and I guess you must—it must have been touched also by your personal experiences.
1: I did, but I don't think I—I I didn't, you know. And again, life is a journey, and these things sort of take time to process. But after LSC, I actually went off to work in San Francisco, and I got a job at an, uh, a Silicon Valley startup. Uh, and within nine months, I was like, I can't do this work, so I started volunteering for a couple of nonprofits. And and then in, ended up sort of making to making the um, the shift to the nonprofit group um, through that, and then I worked in the Bay Area uh, for about a decade. I ran um, uh, this particular nonprofit; it was a health nonprofit, and worked in um, Ecuador, Mexico, Bolivia, South Africa, India. And after about a decade of doing that work, I came back to India. That's when it all kind of culminated for me. And I, I was able to do all of that and live and work in the Amazon jungle in Ecuador or like a township in town because I went to the LSE, because I had an education.
0: Well, you know, I have to let's give credit to the LSE to some extent, but uh, most of the most of the credit to you. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, Key takeaway, if there is one, uh, that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode, is there? Is there one parting thought that you would have?
1: I think my parting thought would be, um, you know, sometimes like I, my parting thought would really may be maybe sharing my dream and my dream for the world. And um, you know, sometimes I think like if the world went to bed tonight, and and I had a way of sprinkling this magic powder. All over. And when everybody in the world woke up the next morning, if they believed that their sons and daughters were equal, we wouldn't have any of these issues. You know, because it's just a switch in the brain, it's just our own mindset that is keeping girls at this level, that's making them go through all this that I, you know, what you described as oh my God, the situation looks so stark. But it's just a mindset issue. And all we need is to switch our brains to saying our sons and our daughters are equal and there wouldn't they wouldn't need to be an educate girls. And you know, we could all go home and, and the world would be such a fabulous place.
0: Hear, here. Hear here. here, here. Safina, really an absolute pleasure hosting you on the Do One Better podcast today. I really enjoyed learning about your journey and, and about the work of Educate Girls and sort of the, the, you know, the data-driven uh, angle to it and also your involvement in, in moving forward with the, uh, with the Development Impact Bond and just uh, fascinating on many fronts. So I wish you continued success. I thank you for joining us today and for sharing your story and your work with us.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me.
0: Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in to the Do One Better podcast. As always, you've been listening to my wonderful guest, Safina Hussein, founder of Educate Girls. For information about today's interview and information on over 100 interviews with remarkable thought leaders, just visit our website at leiji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. Please share widely with others. Do leave us a review if you enjoy the show, and I'll catch you next week.